Oh, boy. Um, this is one of those areas where we like to um, refer back to Samuel Clements, otherwise known as Mark Twain's reference to Benjamin Disraeli. There are three types of lies in order of severity. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and... Jeff. McClure. Together, we are bald. And, and separately, bearded. Separately, we're bald as well. Um, right. And bearded. Uh, we are also... What, what would you call us? We're, we're, we're talking, but we're not really just talking... Heads, we're not on television. So the talking voices. Ooh, I like that talking voice. We are the talking voices and pundits of um, pundit doesn't sound very nice. Though. No, I don't like pundits. We're no, not pundits. We're, we're, we, we do puns, bad ones, especially about the word pundit, because you can think of several puns right off your head with about the, the impact that my joke makes on your brain is a pundit. There you go. There is my An abundant pun, pundit. And I hope that dent that it left behind only gives you a small groan for the rest of the day. Um, yes, a pundit. We are not those, though. We may leave those behind us as we go forward. We purport to understand. No, no. We purport to study and realize how much people really don't understand about the economy. And that's what we're here to talk to you about, about all the things we don't know and why we don't know them. Um, and then well, make it sound like we're very confident about what we think is going to happen in the future. Actually, since I am confident about the fact that the majority of what we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. So we can't talk about something we don't know, we don't know. I we don't can know. only talk about the things that we don't that we know we don't know. I, I don't know about that. Yes. Okay. So before we get started about all the things we don't know, we can tell you the disclosures of the things that we do know. First, we told you we're bald. This is certifiable, verifiable, and we are certifiable as well. Um, we're bearded. We are also, Jeff and Jake McClure, are also the principals of an investment advisory firm registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission to give fiduciary investment advice in the best interest of clients. Now, what does that mean for the radio program? Um, we're telling you because we're limited in our speech we, number one, fiduciaries, it's important that if you give fiduciary advice, you're doing it in private, one-on-one, -on -one, and you know the situation before you begin, and you at least have some degree of expertise on the subject. All those things have to work. To claim that we have expertise in the economy is stretching it. It may be better than everybody else's or some other people's, um, but the amount that's unknown is still huge. So we claim some degree of expertise, which enough to say that nobody's really an expert. And because the firm's registered with the SEC to give investment advice, doesn't mean that the SEC has some kind of a approval status for those two bald guys. No, they don't give us a thumbs up. Uh, they haven't given us a thumbs down either, but that doesn't say anything. They just may not have been paying attention. So they don't give us any credibility they're just the ones to complain to, and they're our regulators. So if we say something stupid, 
scratch that. Let's remove that from the record. That's mostly what we talk about. If we say something fraudulent, you should complain to them. A stupidity, that's not a crime, or we'd all be in prison. Man, yeah, we'd all be in prison. <laughs> yes. So not only that, we're not giving advice on the air. Yeah. If you called in in the privacy of this broadcast and we gave you great advice, it would be in violation of all things fiduciary because there's not much privacy in our conversation and we don't know really who you are. And if we did know who you are and started revealing it on the air because you called in and asked us a question, there'd be all kinds of problems with that. So what are well, we, we doing? Give, what are we doing if we, we can, can't give advice? We can give some advice on the air. Buy low, sell high. Um, don't get involved in a land war on the Asian continent. Yeah. Um, uh, buy a stock. When it goes up, sell it. If it doesn't go up, don't buy it in the first place. Yes. Yeah. There you go. That may, yeah. So this is good. good advice. If you can follow that, we're good. I think that's the universal advice that anybody could follow. If they followed it, it would be all good. Well, that uh, last one, you had to quote the source. So that's Will Rogers. Yes, Will Rogers. Um, so this... This, as a, as a full circle, we're not giving investment advice on the air. We're giving, hopefully, education. Okay. So that was, you know, we're, we're not paid to do this radio program, and we don't pay to do the radio program. This is not paid commercial programming, nor is it something that we do as a career. Uh, it's some kind of volunteer torture that we put on ourselves, but it actually is the longest that these two bald people get to talk to each other in any given week, generally speaking. By the way, Elder Baldy Jeff is my father. I am younger Baldy Jake, and we have been working together in the investment world, retaining what degree of sanity you may judge us to have or lack thereof since 1991. You've been doing this nine years no. longer than me. You did it since 82. So, right. Well, actually, technically it was 83. 83. January of 83. I was working in the business in the fall of 1982. However, I was not licensed to offer securities or give advice on securities until January of 1983. Okay. So for you, it's 40 years mm -hmm. um, to, to now. And that's a lot of time. Well, uh, not really. Um, and 32 years for me. So cumulatively, we've been doing this. No, you can't add that together. It's not how it works. You, you can. What we're saying is that we've been around the markets a long time. And with that information and that experience, we can tell you we don't know a lot. When we first got into this and we're getting all trained up, and I know about, I don't know about you, but, you know, coming in with all my education behind me, I thought I was going to be able to know all kinds. And then I started discovering all the things we don't know. And it's, it's still nice to not know less than other people don't know, but that's a lot of double negatives in that sentence. If you can follow that, then I'm impressed. Um, um, we have a couple of questions out there. One of them was sent to us yesterday in the morning for today's mm -hmm. airing by our most faithful questioner, uh, Inquisitor John. Thank you once again. Uh, and he's included an article. I don't think this is the Wall Street Journal. Might be. Um, a digital picture of a uh, paper, newspaper. It is the Wall Street Journal. It is. And it's talking about uh, in depth about uh, central bank digital currency and where we are in the United States uh, on it. Uh, there's a part of the article is circled. It says the U.S. is studying the issue and has run trials of various technologies to enable dig a digital currency. 
Although Fed Chairman Jerome Powell has indicated the U.S. Central Bank has no plans to create one and won't do so without direction from Congress. So the question that John has is, how close are we to a central bank digital currency? Uh, CBDG. uh, CBDC. CBDC. Yeah. Which which sounds like something you would sell in a shop in Colorado. And and it won't be called that once we do it, by the way. It's just going to be called money. Um, (laughs) it's like when all the cars are driverless, you don't call them driverless cars anymore. They're just cars. And when all the cars don't have horses in front of them, you don't call them horseless carriages. You just drop the edges at the end of carriages and the horseless part and call them a car. You drop the horseless. Yeah. And you drop the edge. So we're not going to, becomes a car. We're not going to say, uh, that'll be, uh, $3 in the CDBC dollars, please. It's just going to be dollars. Okay, so the questions are, will Congress have to pass a law or can the Fed act alone on this? Do we think the PwC, the personal wealth coach, think the financial institution will be first before the general public? Pros and cons. Because there's different ways of approaching this. Okay, pros and cons. Let me, let me get to the beginning of this. How close are we? It could be three or four years out. Uh, will Congress have to act? Yes. There is a law that says any denomination other than the ones listed in the current denominations have to be approved by the Congress. They're in charge of the purse strings. Um, So what this amounts to is a really bureaucratic type of law because it's not really replacing a denomination. What is a digital currency first? I mean, isn't, isn't our money already digital if you have a credit card or a bank that you've got your money it's not in paper anymore it's you when you log into the bank you see the electronic representation of your money you don't see your money so what do we mean when we're talking about a central bank digital currency or a digital currency in general okay um each bank has their own way of looking at your money and this has been true since Banks were called banks. The Medicis um, of Italy, the, the banking family of Venice and Florence, basically funded the Renaissance by being good in their ledger books, by be- knowing how much money they had in each of their bank branches. They used a, a very new ledger technology that just caused them to make a massive amount of money, and it was called double-entry bookkeeping. Yes, Double-entry bookkeeping. This is a ledger technology that the Medicis had and nobody else did for a while. Because of that, they knew how much money they had at each bank branch and whether or not they needed to move money from one bank branch to another in order to make a loan, things like that. Things that you would think banks would have some knowledge of before. When you're doing the accounting in one column, It's really hard to keep up with that stuff, especially when you're transferring things from one place to another. And I know that sounds really esoteric. So is blockchain. Blockchain is not cryptocurrency. It is the technology that the stuff runs on, and it's the good part of the silliness that happened in the crypto market. It didn't have anything to do with the crypto market, except that the crypto market said, that's a good idea, let's use it. Uh, It is the white paper that developed the blockchain is the same white paper that developed Bitcoin. But it was as a, how do we keep the blockchain running? Let's give some people some 
um, some awards of these tokens or something. You could like you can give them real money if you want. It says this in the white paper. So the Bitcoin grew out of that. Blockchain has been used though, and there's a great interview this morning on CNBC. Not that I think that they're the greatest interview place, but uh, they were interviewing Jamie Dimon, who is a well-known uh, financial CEO. I don't want to go into too much of his background, but he's very much against the concept of whatever crypto is. He calls them pet rocks, and I tend to agree with them. Uh, they don't hold a value except what people give them, and their market share is dropping, which gives them less value. So that's in, in the middle of this. And the interviewer didn't know the difference between crypto and blockchain because blockchain, like double entry bookkeeping, is not something you just pick up and go, oh, I know what that means. You have to be trained on it. It's accounting. Well, Jamie Dimon understands that and the interviewer didn't. So he's asking, hey, you said this, but blockchain and, and Jamie Dimon says, no, blockchain's fine. We are already using that in repo payments with the Fed. That's the first time I've ever heard him say or anybody say publicly that that was happening. Just keep that big, big, big piece of news. He slipped up and about two minutes later said, can we change the subject? I don't think he was supposed to say that, but it's part of the, the testing process. What is a repo? It's when um, it's kind of like what when the Fed raises and lowers interest rates. It's a way of making a loan overnight and then repossessing that loan the next day in exchange for the interest. That's it. It's what a repo is. So they're already using the blockchain at the test mode at the Federal Reserve. And it's allowing same day and same minute transactions to occur. That's part of the testing process that we're talking about. And that data will be presented to Congress to say, look how much better it's making the financial transactions. It removes that big long wait. When you move $100,000 from Wells Fargo to Citigroup, um, if you have $100,000, you sold your house and you want to transfer it over to this other account so you can do something. And they say, that'll be two weeks before you can touch it. And you say, wait a minute, I just waited six months for the closing on my house. And now I got to wait another two weeks just because you want me to? Why? Because they don't know what every uh, other bank you had it at actually had it. Because each bank counts the money differently. Go back to the Medici's. A central bank method of accounting to give each dollar its own identifier and each penny its own identifier, its own name, if you will. They're absolutely unique from every other. Means that this unique item leaving this place and showing up at that place can happen instantaneously. If you're just taking things that are identical to a bunch of beans and throwing them in a pot, you don't know where each bean came from. So the blockchain is being used here. It's also being tested thoroughly by the agriculture department in meat processing and in grain movements so that they can track which chicken egg came from which chicken. When you've got massive, massive rows of chickens and massive, massive rows of eggs going on conveyor belts to be able to know which egg came from which chicken when there's a disease, it's pretty cool. So it's weird. It's accounting. And it's accounting for chickens and chicken eggs and pork chops and money. Um, but that is coming for our money in general. It's going to happen. 
Congress is going to have to get involved. The financial institutions are already doing it. There's a there's two kinds of central bank digital currencies, and Chairman Powell has talked about this, and the Federal Reserve Board has publications about it. And I think it's important to recognize the difference. One, and Jake was talking about this, it's already being used in effect between banks. Cool, works really well. If in fact the central bank issues a digital currency. A, a blockchain-based digital currency for use by the public. The immediate implications that came out in a paper published by the Federal Reserve were that the banks, the banking institutions around the country as institutions would lose value. Why would they lose value? I mean, if you open up a dollar bill, you can actually see the effect immediately. That dollar bill was actually issued by the Treasury, by the, by the Federal Reserve Bank in the United States, one of its Federal Reserve Banks. So at that point, if you're only dealing with that, you're only dealing with the Federal Reserve Bank and the member of the public who's buying and selling. And all the national banks and state banks and everything else where you've been keeping your money become irrelevant. And that would be a pretty phenomenal impact on the economy. Uh, we were talking about a central dank, bank. It might be dank, too. A central bank a dank, digital cur- currency. It's a dank bank. Um And the report that came out that was commissioned by the Federal Reserve that talked about how it may endanger small banks if all money is the same and you could deposit it digitally with the Federal Reserve, why wouldn't you just do that? And the answer to that that the Fed gave at the time of that report is that the Federal Reserve is a network of banks. And the local bank is part of that network. So it doesn't change the responsibility of the bank. They're still the ones giving the loans or the interest rates on the bank deposits and all that stuff. So there was a, 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 the commissioned report came back and it really didn't understand what was happening here. If a bank allows you to move money from one bank to another bank cost free, um, you're still going to have a lot of reasons why you wouldn't move from one bank to another bank. And there's a really, there's a whole series of crazy studies on this that are not peer reviewed or published because they're done at the industry level. And at the industry level, what does that mean? Um, If you're at a bank, why don't you move to another bank? If you see an advertisement that says that their checking account is paying uh, 1.2% or uh, and your checking account is paying 0.5%. Why don't you move to that other bank? Because not a lot of people do. Even when the interest rates get to be grossly different, you don't see people leaving one bank and going to another. And the reason is because their trash bill is set up to that account and their subscription to Netflix, which is on a credit card, which is in the same bank, is paid automatically to that credit card from the bank account. And that's the answer is that the money and how it's counted just has a more general way of coming about. It is likely, if done correctly, not going to have a bad impact on the banks. That's not been how it's worked in China. It's not been how it's working in the test cases in Turkey because they're not on a central bank network already. They're basically just saying if you're not in the network – your bank just became worthless. And uh, I think everybody's picking up blockchain at the same speed. So as a, for instance, why would you have money at PayPal versus Citigroup? Um, We could talk about FDIC. Well, there isn't FDIC, none at at PayPal. 
And some products at Citigroup don't either. You have to look for that stuff. So why would you have it at PayPal instead of Citigroup? The answer to that is because it's more digital and more quickly available and you can do mm -hmm. online transactions. So it would put PayPal in direct jeopardy because Citigroup would be able to essentially do exactly what PayPal is doing at the payment scheme. It may put MasterCard and Visa in direct jeopardy. And those are the impact studies that they're still looking at. The reality is the bank itself is really sticky. Once you get in there, you, it's not the interest rate that makes you move unless it's really big. It's some other big moment in your life. Otherwise, we'd all be moving banks every month because one bank or another has got a better deal all the time. And, and that's the behavioral side of this. So when we come to a digital currency, we got to look to see what happens to how do we do this at the payment level? When you're paying with your credit card at the gas pump or at, uh, at the vendor, a big chunk of that charge is the accounting of the money from one position to another. And if that accounting becomes universal, then why would you pay MasterCard to do an instantaneous transaction when you can just do it through the bank? I think you got a, I think you got a point there, and I think it will be disruptive. Uh, I've already seen the disruption occur. We went from everybody had their money at banks and was writing checks. Yeah. And they, if they wanted to save the money, they would save it at the bank. Uh, and they would get some interest uh, at the bank or the savings loan or wherever you went. Then we went to a period of very high inflation and a period where things were getting a bit disturbed. And something interesting happened, and it's called disintermediation, uh, which is a good word. Yeah, it's a great word to, to have in your, in your vocab bank. And, and it's still underway, but it's stabilized, and we consider it to be normal now. And that is people started using money market mutual funds. Yeah. I mean, the banks even came up with something called money market funds, which had nothing to do with the money markets, so they could compete with money market mutual funds. But the money market mutual funds were paying significantly higher interest rates than the banks were, and a tremendous amount of money moved from banks to money market mutual funds. It was disruptive, but we adjusted and kept going. Banks at that point, and here's something I think you just hit right on the head, Jay. Banks at that point began to real the ones that survived, realized they were no longer in the business of making loans and taking deposits. They were in the business of providing services for fees. Yeah. And the ones that survived and thrived provided sticky services for fees. That's what Jake was talking about, conveniences and fees. Banks used to make their money by taking people's deposits in and paying them a lower interest rate than they would charge on loans. And they finally have gotten past that. And I think that's the way our entire economy is going, by the way. Many things are becoming commoditized, including money, Yeah, which is an interesting concept we can talk about. Mm -hmm. But it's services that makes the difference. So mm -hmm. John had a question, has another question for us. Periodically, you hear I didn't get that, that spending bills. It's sent to you, too. The spending ah, bills authorized by Congress have monies that have not been spent. Does borrowing include those monies or is money borrowed as it is spent? <clears throat> money is borrowed as it's spent. Yes, uh, it's borrowed and, as it's spent. Unless it's like a purchase for defense, for instance, um, because the time of spending is weird on a contract that if you are buying equipment, you generally have to put some money down up front. Um, so there's some spending there that occurs that's not, the totality of the spending and they might borrow the entire amount just so that they have it available when, when the contract comes due. Uh, it, the, 
the treasury has a certain amount of cash on hand and then they borrow in anticipation of needs that are coming up in the short term. That's, that's your, that's the answer to your question. Right. Um, so, so when we're looking at, um, what's borrowed, we only look at bonds that are issued as they're issued. Cause we got really good records. Cause that's where the contract is signed that we are borrowing money. Uh, here's a, here's an example of some money that didn't wind up being spent that was borrowed. Uh, that was used for other benefits. So this is way back. Go back in time here. Back to the Troubled Asset Relief Program, otherwise uh, unaffectionately known by all involved as TARP. Um, TARP was about $800 billion, a little over, more than $700 billion, that was available to buy up mortgage-backed securities and bail out institutions that needed it through loans and so on by the federal government during the global financial crisis, the Great Recession. So they took out all this money. It's a big slush fund. They gave it to the treasurer of the United States, and he got to say this is where it's going. We only wound up spending about $340 billion of that. We wound up making in maturing loan payments about $600 billion from it. So it wound up being a net revenue maker and the money was used to pay down existing debt. It basically was used to pay debt off. Um, So that was a net positive to the government in the following several years. So that was a George W. Bush thing that showed up in the revenue generation for uh, Barack Obama uh, because the, the notes, the bills were maturing for the loans that were granted under TARP uh, during the Obama administration. And you, you can look at this sort of thing um, throughout history. So that, that is debt that was accrued at the, before the spending point. But the vast majority of government obligations are debt that's accrued at the point of spending, which means Congress says, We will buy that thing and might even have a contract to buy that thing, but hasn't borrowed the money yet because they're waiting for that time to come to borrow the money. They do it as the spending occurs. If Congress then says, no, we're not going to borrow that money, whatever private institution that they were going to be paying has already spent money on that contract. If we're talking about Northrop Grumman or Boeing or... Uh, you just go down the list of anybody that has a contract with the United States government, even if it's for picking up trash on the federal highway. They've hired people to do it with. They've got equipment to do it with. They may be getting debt so that they can acquire all that stuff to do the job that they've just been issued, and then the government doesn't pay them. Yep, that's a bad thing. And that can be an issue. I mean, it doesn't matter if the, the debt This this is another way of looking at it. If you don't raise the debt ceiling, you cannot target anywhere in the budget to say this is what we won't spend. It's just universally we don't have the money to spend anymore. We We cannot continue to spend money. So you stop Social Security and you stop defense and you stop... The highway department, you you stop paying people that are employed by the military. Yeah, that's that's that is one of the big things. If in fact 
This is when they got the question from Congressman Carter. The, the first thing that hit me is if I say yes, I think holding the debt ceiling hostage, I am saying in effect that military personnel deployed in harm's way overseas just don't get paid. We will not, will not, we will not pay them or their families so they can't buy groceries. We we won't allow them to buy groceries. We will cause them to default on their debts in order to try to pressure the majority who are elected by the American people to do something we want them to do that they haven't done, which is totally morally unacceptable to me. And, and if you want to boil the debt ceiling down to something very, very, very concrete, it is that if the federal government runs out of money to spend and the debt ceiling is not raised, military servicemen and their family or men, women and their families who are in harm and, and the people who have put themselves in harm's way to defend us will not get a paycheck. So they when, will not be able to buy groceries. They will not be able to pay their rent or their house payment. From our perspective, Congress has a right way to do this. You've got a budget coming up. You, there, a budget just got passed, but you've got a new budget coming up. If you want to cut the budget in a targeted way, if you can identify the places that you want to cut, do it in the budget. This year is a year when fewer people have, I mean, more people have a say in the budget because it's down to a fewer majority. So everybody in Congress has the opportunity to come in and say, here's where I want to cut. Here's the mismanagement or the misspending. That's the right way to do it. Not a universal, nope, we're not paying anybody because the budget's too big. That's not how you do this, guys. If you do do it this way, it's damaging extremely. Don't write, don't go into the restaurant, order the most expensive thing on the menu for your entire party. And then when they bring you the bill, say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to cut back on my credit card. So we're just not going to pay that. <laughs> they don't care who was in charge of the party that just bought the food. They just want to get paid. They don't care if you've just had a CEO change in the middle of the party. They want you to pay for the food that you bought. And that's where we are as an economy. When the United States government makes an obligation they should meet that obligation, not over a fit of disagreement, say, no, we're not going to pay the third party because we're disagreeing in our own household. Go ahead. Got another question from Randy. And um, he said, do you still agree there are growing signs of the possibility of recession is further buoyed by layoffs within the white collar segment of the three large tech companies? No, I, Randy, I don't. What it boils down to is those layoffs in the high in the white collar sections the engineers and the executives and so on in the high tech companies and there have been thousands of them it appears they're not even hitting the unemployment rows yeah they are not straight from one job to the next they're being hired generally at a higher wage someplace else immediately there's another indication that we're not headed into a recession copper the price of copper the future copper futures have gone up nine percent so far in 2023 what does that mean copper is the sort of eternal bellwether of the economy, of what, the world economy. Currently, and not what eternal. I mean by that. <laughs> it was it was true uh, in the Egyptian era as well, but today well, electronics it, it, it need copper. Perennial. It yeah. boils down to the fact you're going to build a house, you have to have copper. If you're going to build electronics, you have to have copper. If you're going to build a car, you have to have copper. 
So advance orders for copper indicate that there's going to be a lot of stuff built somewhere by somebody. The price of copper, I mean, the, the production of copper takes a long time to change. So the, the supply is relatively fixed. The demand is variable. So copper is a strong indicator of which way the economy is going. It's up 9% so far this year. What does that mean? That means that there's a lot of people out there who are looking around and say, I have orders coming in that have not been made public yet. I'm going to have to build a bunch of stuff. That is a strong indication that we have a good, healthy economy moving forward with growth. Um, the leading economic indicators when they were released in December uh, the conference board said that we would probably enter into the leading in the economic indicators indicated we would enter into a probably enter into a recession in January of 2023. Let me tell you, folks, there is absolutely no evidence that we've entered into a recession. On the contrary, everything that we have seen in January of 2023 indicates the economy is growing very nicely. Yeah, it's stabilizing. Um, the services purchasing managers index is at 49.7, which is really close to balanced. It's not growing like a weed anymore. The manufacturing, uh, what's going on in the manufacturing sector of the United States is slowed down slightly. Why is it? But it's slowed down from an unsustainable rate of speed. In other words, it's coming back to a sustainable rate, which does not indicate we're entering into a recession. In manufacturing, there is no evidence of layoffs. There's no evidence of anything but but the manufacturers continuing to wanting to hire more people. Uh, those are all indicators that we're not heading into a recession. It's a very confusing time from an economics point of view when we try to look at indicators that indicate that, that tell us what is coming down the road. And what we're seeing is from the ground level, from the where the rubber meets the road, we're seeing indicators that manufacturers and retailers and everybody else see a growing economy going on. But the tea leaves, as shown by interest rates and yield curves and things like that, are pointing to a recession. It'll be really fascinating for us to see what happens over the next six months. But if we have a recession, we may. It will almost undoubtedly be an extremely mild recession. I, I, and I'm going to say this. So there's another wild card. I gave you two examples that we could get pushed into a recession for. I'm going to give some wild cards of how we could go the other direction. Because it sounds like um, you know, Congress could shut us all down, and bomb cyclones, bad floods, California. Okay, here's some things that are also happening currently. China's opening up. Now that has some significant negatives in China on the chaotic way the medical system is acting and all of that. But people are going back to work. Now, they're in the middle of the Chinese New Year, which means they are traveling all over the place, and they have gone several years without doing it. When they do that, their economic activity is going to increase massively. When they come back to work, their economic output is going to increase massively. That's going to bring prices down here. The opposite of inflation, part of the inflation is it was so hard to get stuff out of China recently. New construction was not occurring there. It had to occur someone else, somewhere else. It would have been easier to do it next to our existing plants because the existing infrastructure to get it out would have been faster, but we can't. So their ability to produce a bunch of stuff quickly has just increased, which could our, bring our inflation way, way down. That could cause us to sustain growth throughout 2023 and not have a recession at all. 
So there's a lot of moving parts and they're not normal. And we're out of, we're one minute short of out of time for the first hour. So we need to tell you something. Yeah. We're going to tell you how you can talk to us off the air. If you'd like, we actually do this for a living when it comes to portfolio management at the fiduciary level, generally people with higher net worth. Um, but we actually do like to talk to people anyway. Um, if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we have voicemail waiting uh, during the weekend, real live people during the week. Locally, the number is 254-947-1111. Or you can reach us toll free, presuming you still have a landline at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com where you can read our newsletter, sign up for the delivery of the newsletter every Friday. You can uh, look at our radio programs going back lots of years. You can find our podcasts wherever you find podcasts, Easter egg style. You can contact us through the contact form on the webpage or email us directly at jeff or jake at tpwc.com. We actually read those things and do endeavor to respond. Uh, Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach. Thank you very much for listening.